Have you ever been told that you're too sensitive at work or that you're overreacting or that it's all in your head? Have you ever raised concerns only to be told that the same thing happens everywhere else and that it's just the way we do things around here? If so, you may have been gaslighted. This is part of a spectrum of bullying and emotional and relational abuse that can be endemic in today's workplace. In this episode, I'm joined by James Costello, a psychotherapist, researcher and author of the book Workplace Wellbeing, a relational approach. We talk about the insidious ways that organisations and individuals can undermine us, causing us to have to do extra emotional labour just to cope with workplace dynamics. And we talk about what happens when authority and power is misused and some of the disastrous consequences it has on individuals and for teams and what we can do about it. So listen, if you want to find out the many forms that relational abuse can take and what to do if you suspect that you or a colleague might be a target of gaslighting. And listen, if you want to find out the secret formula that psychotherapists use to help people flourish and grow and how you can apply that in your work. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years of experience working in the NHS and I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer. And the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog. And that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you will simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and thrive, not just survive, in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's brilliant to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. James Costello. Now, James is a psychotherapist and he uh, is a researcher. He works at the University of the West of England and he's recently written a book 
called Workplace Wellbeing, a Relational Approach, which is just fantastic, published by Routledge. And he really specializes in relationships at work. And in fact, you said to me just now, Jim, work is relationships. That's right. Yes. Yes. I think that that very often comes as a, as a bit of a revelation for, for people who I speak to. It's, oh my goodness. Yeah, yes, it is. I mean, relationships have the capacity to make us joyful, give our lives meaning, but also they can make us pretty bloody miserable as well. So, and I think we have that whole spectrum in the workplace. And one of the reasons I wanted um, to, to get you on the podcast today, amongst loads of other reasons, is that I'm increasingly getting frustrated with what I call the fruit and bicycles approach to well-being and resilience. This sort of attitude that if we provide a fruit bowl for everybody, give them some fresh fruit, and perhaps we give them a, a cycle to work scheme, then, then they're going to be all right. Because it's, it's really dreadful working here, but we'll we'll just put a sticking plaster and maybe do a a yoga session at lunchtime, which they can attend in their own time. Yeah, in between those those extra things that they have to do, and that is our responsibility towards well being. Yeah, I, I call it the the soothed disengagement approach. When I spoke to you know medical professionals in preparing for the book, I heard people say an awful lot. You you know I I I don't want to be put into a room for half an hour to be silent. And just forget how crap my job is. Oh, sorry. Can I say that word in your podcast? <laughs> 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 say anything um, in my podcast. I actually want what happens outside the room to change, you know, and I, I don't want to be soothed yeah. and disengaged. But don't get me wrong. I think, you know, I think there's a place for fruit. And I've just recently used the cycle to work scheme to buy lots of bicycles <laughs> for my family. So I think they're good. <laughs> But it has to be, uh, you know, in context. And, you know, I can say more about that later because it sounds like it, it bothers you. I know it bothers me. Well, it does bother me because I'm, oh. I'm one of those people who provide this <laughs> right, okay. well-being and resilience training. So, you know, and I'm, I'm just about to provide it for, for a year right. for a great big hospital trust. I run courses on resilience for doctors, all these sorts of things. And I guess the, the one thing that I've noticed that the, the biggest barrier to well-being and resilience isn't that people don't know what to do. It's that they don't have the time to do it and that there are issues in the workplace that that get, that get in the way and that are real, real barriers for people. So I think the fruit balls and the cycle to work schemes and the well-being and the mindfulness and the yoga and all that is is vitally important because actually you, you need to stay well to to, to give your best so these individual resilience skills massively important and it, it's it's what I do and the workplace is just as important and that's why I sort of wanted yeah. to do a, a load of podcasts actually around how we how we make workplace better because there's some stuff we can do there's some stuff we can't do but I think just acknowledging it in the first place is is really important and, and what I loved about your book is that you're talking about people it's it, it's about people it's about the relationships and we can't abdicate responsibility but neither can the, our leaders in our workplace either i guess the reason why i got so interested in the workplace i, I a long time ago i was working as a, a workplace counselor in an occupational health unit of a large hospital here in bristol and i started to get quite frustrated it is there's this metaphor of you know seeing all the people in the river shouting for help and you wade in and you pull someone out and you give them CPR and you dry them off and then you throw them back in again. And and from upstream, there's more and more people in the water waving for help. And it gets very, you know, you know we, we can set up uh, really big, clever organisations 
that, that drive people off and spruce them up and give them some CPR, but then throw them back in again. But I just felt it's time to go upstream and find out what's happening to us. Why are all these people falling into this kind of emotional, torrential sort of process that, that requires them to be, you know, mollified by some kind of soothed disengagement? So I guess that also, that's also what, what interested me in, in activism as well. So, so in my workplace, I became a trade union caseworker. I do find myself actually working with management in a kind of like a psychoeducational aspect where I'm trying to you know, simply get you know, managers to adhere to organizational policies, which yeah, they need to get changed and updated as well. But I think activism through you know, uh, being in a union certainly uh, has allowed me to take you know, what I think theoretically and, and also put it into practice. And it gives you a real insight into what really goes on behind the scenes. And, and in the book, you describe this stuff that goes on behind the curtain as, or, or maybe not behind the curtain, maybe actually out in public, as, as relational abuse. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? I think what, t- terms like bullying uh, and incivility, ostracism, scapegoating, passive aggression, uh, the, the, the kind of ways in which we, we use anger in socially acceptable ways in the workplace are all part of this kind of nested array of quite complex ways in which we use relationships to manipulate, coerce, and and be punitive and, and damage people. And I think I, I think when you look at the literature uh, on this, there's still there's still you know quite a lot of difficulty in trying to define what bullying is and so on. But actually, I find it more useful to to consider that you know emotional aggression or emotional abuse because that kind of captures a lot of the kind of what I call micro aggressions in the in the in the workplace. So so I you know, I, don't, I I conceive it as being like hierarchy. So you have all these kind of interpersonal experiences, and then the middle type nest of emotional abuses, I would say, are are things that require you, you know it can involve individuals, but it tends to involve kind of groupings such as you know sexual harassment, discrimination, and then of course at the top of the, the hierarchy of this pyramid. Is is what I'd call the, the corruption complex, which is what what permits and allows these behaviours to kind of take place. Because, for example, at a micro level, management may well be very unhappy about the fact that uh, scapegoating is going on. But in fact, at a meta level, that's exactly what goes on in management. If you want to belong to the management caste, this is the sort of behaviours that you have to engage in. You know, this is the kind of soft abuses that are part of how we run an organisation. And hierarchies themselves are about a lack of trust. Why else would we, you know, come together as a group of people and organise ourselves in this way? You know, you see, you see it happening in the animal kingdom. You see, you know, the chickens organise themselves in this king order and, and, and troops of baboons organise themselves in this sort of arrangement in which, you know, control is, is organised in a way that's, that, that's downwards. Because how else do you get what you want from members of your species or your pack if you can't trust them to, to give it to you via process negotiation? That's what hierarchies are, after all. I just think we're more sophisticated than a troop of baboons. I just think there are other ways of actually interacting and engaging with each other to get what we need from each other. And I guess that, that's, why, that's why I'm so focused on relationships. I think that's really interesting about the 
corruption conflict complex i know you, you talked about it in the book being the misuse of authority and power for personal gain or benefit of the group or the clique and gosh we've, we've all seen that you know managers doing things to stay to stay in their jobs rather than for the benefit of, of their people but then they they are being relationally abused yeah. from above and it's and so on so yeah. on so i think that the corruption complex thinks about things being unethical but not illegal and the corruption complex starts right at the very top you know, our, our, our own prime minister, I think it was in November, I, I think there was a report on one of his one of his ministers that found that she had been a bully. And his reaction was, well, you know, she's, she's, she's a confident manager. And let's let's ignore that. And so right from the very top, we, we have this sense that actually bullying serves a purpose. And, yeah, things like nepotism, which is also, I think, highly problematic and undermining the workplace because that, that's about you know, bring on people that are just like me. So if we want a diverse workplace, you know, we've got to, we've got to tackle that. If we want a truly diverse workplace, then we've got to have, we've got to, we've got to stop people giving jobs to people just like them, you know. So it's quite complex what goes on in the corruption complex, but it's, I think it's just beginning to, to, to emerge as something that we can use to describe the practices in the workplace that, that are really problematic and undermining. Yeah, because because we all know that bullying is wrong, right? You, you, and you mustn't ever discriminate against someone, you know, and you must be civil. And there are some, yeah. I guess, some legal definitions of bullying. And, and I know that you make a really interesting point in the book that the problem is once you start going by the legal definition of it, and yes. you're talking about, the, is it the MOD yes. has like yes. 100 pages on what bullying is and, and what it's not? The, the, the MOD has a very kind of legalistic description of practices that are, not permitted or that transgress what's acceptable in the organization and from my experience of people working in like the mod it's a great place to work and other organizations have a much more loose floppy definition of what it is to be a bully and that's because management still want to be able to define who the bullies are you know because they want to be able to nominate those who use the the positional power to control others and that makes it quite hard to, to challenge. Before we started the podcast, you were talking about how, you know, organizations as a whole can, can be the bully. So, so how, do, how do we tackle that? How do we challenge that? And we have to do that as a collective. A relational approach is about recognizing that we need to, to behave and act as a collective in order to be able to challenge, you know, organizational power. Because it's really hard to do individually. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. The, the definition of bullying you know, you, we can all get behind and say, yeah, that, that, that is not right. And organisations have a legal responsibility sort of duty to address it. But yeah. when you talk about relational abuse, it, it's so much wider and it includes all those things that are really insidious and cause almost as many problems as, yeah. as bullying, but they are sort of acceptable. So, for example, you have a, a group of colleagues and say, say two of them are kind of by, by their nature you know, anxious about the future and want to exert a little bit of control over their peers. And and they, they, they can collude in order to create a power base within the group and act as a pair in order to exert power over others, to perhaps ostracise, to perhaps undermine, to control others to perhaps undermine people in a different context in order to degrade their professional standing. Say somebody 
they they want to have a, a stay at home day because the uh, because work is is just too stressful on. And there may all be structural reasons for that. For example, the work route has been arranged really badly, and someone has just had you know a large run of nights. They've got a young family. They just need some time off. Well, actually, they behave in a very normal way to kind of abnormal circumstances. Now, the way that that is actually framed by other colleagues or senior colleagues could be such and such one is sick. Well, this pathologizes that person, doesn't it? It undermines their professionalism and it puts, if you like, the blame or the onus on that person and actually deflects attention from what's really going on because that because um, that they may be new to the team, because they haven't quite understood how work rotors are organized. They, they've got all the, the bum jobs, basically, and they're just in danger of burning out. And because the general message is, if you take time off, you're weak, you're not up to the standards, you're, 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 you get sick, you're, you're pathologized, and so nobody else will, will, will take time off to, when they need to. So, so, for example, it can be about creating these myths of invincibility, because I, I certainly know in the medical profession, as a young student, I used, to, you know, I used to work in hospitals as a porter, and I would see consultants parading around, and uh, this kind of quite godlike figure of invincibility... <laughs> It really does intimidate those who want to rise to that position. And so the the idea is that if to get to where I am, then you have to take you have to you have to you know take the treatment that I had. It's how I got here. You've got to go through that as well. So there's a there's this kind of relational abuse that uh, the only way you can get to this level is to is to be abused in the way that I was. Well, actually, this is this is quite similar to the kind of abuse that happens. You know, I do, I do a lot of work with sexual abuse in families, and it's generational. It goes on for generations. The abuse. This is what's normal for me, and this is what I'm going to do to you. I don't. I don't see it as wrong. It's just what I'm used to. And uh, don't stop and ask me if it's right or wrong. That's too. That's too problematic. And so, very often in organisations, you see parallels with with abuses from you know from a very serious context. And no one no one no one to disagree that you know sexual abuse in families is, is wrong and dangerous. But but the, the parallels exist in organizations as well. And in fact the parallels exist in organizations that investigate sexual abuse and in organizations that provide counseling to those who have been the target of sexual abuse. Uh, the parallel the parallel processes of silences and what's kept secret continues you know and and i guess where i get where, where i get involved in my consultancy is to say you know are you noticing the parallel processes going on here are you noticing that what 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 you do professionally plays out in your relationships with each other as well so i'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure if that's kind of really nailed it down enough but when, when i see what happens between two people i always see it in the context of you, you know what is permitted, what sort of behaviours are are presented to you as, as normalising behaviour, and I think when, when I when I talk to colleagues and friends who work in the medical profession, the expectations of the fact that you put the ideal masculine employee first, because I talk in the book a lot about how we organise work and 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 work intrinsically structurally is based upon the idealized man who can devote himself to the workplace for 40 years and because he's a man he doesn't have to reproduce that's all behind the scenes right that's just structurally how we organize work and it still goes on until we we begin to make real structural changes like 
you know, men take their paternity leave and a lot of it. That's what that's what we really have to do in terms of gender equality in the workplace and making the workplace, you know, more more friendly for people who are not men, quite frankly. Yeah, that is so fascinating. When you were talking about, you know, this is how we've always done it. It happened to me. Therefore, it's going and you and you excuse it. I was just thinking. In the book, you talk about, you know, bullying and how we need to change our language and how we often, you know, there's the bully and then there's the victim, which is very difficult then for you to admit that you're the victim or whatever and, and you talk about actually we should be call it the perpetrator and the target and some of the euphemisms that people say about the perpetrator and the target I just like to read some out because I think they're fascinating and I, I I'm sure I've been called a lot of these are overly sensitive can't take a joke you know one of life's natural victims a bit of a loner perhaps not a team player a bit of a maverick outsider so if you don't fit in you're, you're not a team player you might not be fitting in because you, you don't fit the gender or the culture or you're refusing to join in with the bad behaviour or has an attitude problem or a troublemaker. And I've certainly been called that when I have raised concern. And then about the perpetrator, interestingly, like you said, and I, whilst you were talking about, you know, these two people getting into a, an alliance and making it difficult for the rest of the team, I can just, you know, hear hospital docs all around the country going, my department, my department. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, it's a perpetrator. Is a forceful, strong, straight talker. They're a robust personality. Has an unfortunate manner, but they're good, really. They're a good person. It's just their manner's unfortunate. So just put up with that. Doesn't suffer fools gladly. Not a people person. Hard taskmaster. Old, old school. Old school runs a tight ship. I just thought, oh my goodness. And, and, and we accept, we accept all of that. That is fine. Bullies. Yeah. Yeah. Bullies. And uh, actually, I think I was I was in a mediation once. The the manager who was a hard taskmaster was was talking to the person who was the target, and he said, "Your bullies, I will hunt them down, but there'll be no bullies." In fact, in his <laughs> in his the way he was thinking about dealing with bullies, he was actually being quite bullying as well. He's actually he wants to bully the bullies, and he can't escape that cycle. But I also recognise that bullying is a behavior and not something essential to the person because ordinarily when you're working as a psychotherapist you know you think you're always thinking carefully about boundaries but the, during one during one stage of my career as a workplace counselor self-hospital setting it was after about oh i don't know 12 sessions with two people i realized that actually i was talking to the perpetrator and the target Right, and they were—they had been talking about each other in sort of quite general terms. They brought the presenter of the materials, and they were talking about people in their lives that they found quite difficult. But it occurred to me that actually these two people were talking about each other. <clears throat> one was the bully, one was the perpetrator. That the person who was the bully had no idea they were bully. They would—they would not have recognised that epithet. And, but the person experiencing uh, these behaviours certainly felt like they were being emotionally abused. I have to admit, it, th that realisation only came to the fore that when, when the work ended during, in the supervision sessions. I wasn't working with them knowing that. But then it reminded me that the turning point for the person who didn't recognise a bully was when they thought about a period in their life when a very painful period in their life when someone who's very popular that they want to be friends with, it systematically ignored them and ostracized them, and it occurred to them 
just how how painful that was, and yet the person who was who who, who was ignoring them had no idea. So it, it it can be a complex dynamic because very often people's behaviour then they're not aware of the impact, and they may not even be aware of why they're doing it. But then they came to the conclusion, well, does it matter? I don't think it does. What matters is the subjective experience of the person who is the who is the target, because it because it, it, it because all in all, we're not always aware of the impact of our actions as we go about our daily life. I mean, we, we, we can't be. But I think what's really important is to be able to talk about the impact that we have on each other in a way that isn't uh, blaming, but because there can be a lot of shame associated with with both parts of that dynamic, being the bully and being the, the target. The word, you know, the word victim is highly problematic because you know, particularly for, for, for men where you know the masculinity is is really about being autonomous and strong and so on, very often men who are the targets will suffer silently for a very long time. And 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 let's face it, if a man is being bullied by a woman, he is less likely, in my experience, to do something about it than do the way around. You know? So 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 I think whilst there is a systemic aspect to this as well, I I I think, you know, bullies themselves, people who engage in bullying behavior may not always necessarily be aware. But I think that doesn't matter. I think it's about bringing the impact of your behavior to the attention of, of, of others. And this, this does require not a punitive approach to, to bullying, which is the one I described of the manager who wants to go around bullying the bullies, but actually it does require a, a kind of compassionate relational approach and and. In the book, I you know, in the in the other chapters of the book, I do I do talk about what a relational sort of approach you know really looks like. So you know, it's not a theoretical, philosophical sort of argument. It's actually it's bound in the practices therapists engaging, but in secret in their rooms, you know, and, and so it never really gets out. Never never gets out. We, we I think we know all this great stuff, but we don't get it out, and that's that's also a reason why. Now, I wrote the book and you know, engage in a lot of kind of uh, training and that kind of stuff. In a minute, I'm going to come on okay. and ask you a bit about this compassionate approach and, and what bits yeah. that we as non-psychotherapists can, can adopt. First of all, I want to play a little bit devil's advocate because I think often bullying behaviour stems from yeah. the bully themselves being having pressure on them from management to achieve certain things. And I know that in the NHS, we are really scared of performance management, really scared of it. I'm thinking of a colleague who's in a line management responsibility. There's somebody yeah. who's been not doing their job on their team and they uh, probably it hasn't been addressed when it should have been addressed. And now they've had to raise it, give them some improvement targets, things like that. The first thing that this person did is turn around and put in an accusation against them. I get it. You'll push for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a frog.com slash quiz
the bullying. So this is a this is this is a, a sort of dynamic I see a lot because I think performance management can be seen mm. as a very sort of punitive, exposing, and shameful process. When and the, and the pointing, it, it 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 it's got too far down the line and then needs something more formal. When in fact a lot of the, a lot of the work I do as a trade unionist is about escalating, winding things back, and making sure that the informal process, a supportive informal process, has taken place. And yes, I know I know people are, I know people are busy and they don't notice things and things drift and they feel they need to take action because they themselves are concerned about being in the spotlight. But I spend so much of my time engaging in de-escalation and getting people back uh, uh, into being being relational because very often if if things aren't going for someone well at work there's going to be there's going to be re- reasons for it nobody enjoys not contributing effectively uh, to their team and n- nobody enjoys well, people enjoy working well with their colleagues you know it's uh, it, work is is good for us and when work is good for us we are we are happier we are more content you know, all the research evidence shows it. I think Freud said it. He said that the purpose of life is to is to love to work, and and so so it's de- de-escalation, and yeah, when that hurt and that pain gets triggered, and we, we reach for our holsters, then then not only does that create a huge amount of workload for people like me and HR professionals because we work very closely with HR professionals, that creates a huge amount of workload for us, and 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 de-escalation really is is absolutely key so i don't know if that if that if that helps but certainly that's what i spend most of my time doing which is taking the heat out of stuff because you know people get shame is one of those emotions in the workplace and and i think i I talk about i talk about the big three emotions in terms of attachment theory in the book which are fear anger and shame and shame is 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 massive you know it, it can trigger a lot of behaviors because shame is also the fear of being ostracized and and we're human beings we're pack animals if we feel like the pack wants us to <clears throat> try to kick us out that's that that's an existential threat you know yeah. uh, we are part of a pack we need to belong to the pack and 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 the workplace and our teams are are safety packs yeah so you're saying that you know if, if you do have to undergo performance management with someone then spend a lot of time understanding where they're coming from offering informal support before you then have to go down that route and it's less likely to escalate yes i, I mean don't get me wrong i i i have been through that process myself i mean i'm a trade unionist and a psychotherapist and i myself have had to lead somebody out of the organization that worked for me and it was a very painful process but at every at at every opportunity where the hand of help and support was offered, it was rejected. You can offer help and you can be supportive, but if there's no engagement, then that's really difficult to work with. So so I'm not I'm not some kind of wishy-washy liberal who who, who thinks that that you know the workplace is some kind of a soiree. Actually, but I think with compassion and support, we can avoid a lot of these things escalating. Yeah. So yeah, I'd never want to accuse you of being a wishy-washy liberal. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that would be oh, dreadful, I'm wouldn't it? Nervous about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a minute, I'm gonna we're gonna come on to actually what you can do. How can you offer a compassionate approach? What can you do about some of this? But I did just want to touch on 
Um, a few more examples of relational abuse and particularly gaslighting, because this for me was like, oh, yes. And I think I can see this going on in the NHS at the moment. Uh, this may be a bit that I'm too nervous to put out on the podcast, but I have seen a lot of anti-speaking up stuff going on. Uh, that happened to me in my um in my in my workplace and this might not be gaslighting this might just be sort of emotional abuse i've seen at the moment failure to protect our colleagues um in medicine from abuse in the media right. failing to speak yes. up and protect them i'm seeing people being told they have no choice but to work i'm i'm seeing blaming the providers of care rather than the commissioners, the lack of funding. So you, you don't give enough money or resources to the people who've got to provide care. And then when they can't provide the care, yes. you, bl you blame them. And yeah, a lot of that sort of stuff going on. And I think it's causing widespread anger. And, and people are sort of saying, that's enough. We, 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 can't carry on and and then they're maybe being accused of being paranoid or you know being weak or overreacting and all those sorts of things and I just wondered if, if those were examples of relational abuse or not. Oh well that's really that's really that's really fascinating I think uh, I'm not quite sure who said it we treat but God cures you know there's the the, the, the some there's some idea around recognizing that that in the medical profession you are not super men and women and you don't have power over life and death and yet the expectations are really high in your profession the expectations of your profession is really high and i think that message you know very often medical science is fantastically successful but that message that hang on we're not we're not gods we, we can treat and we have we can do that within a limited resource envelope and we care, but but also from your organisation to, to to get that message out to be supported in recognising that actually there's only so much can be done with the resources we have, and if we want more from the NHS and from our practitioners, we need to pay more tax. At the very beginning, was it was it Nye Bevan had had to concede that okay we've got to pay for prescriptions because we can't they can't be free right from the beginning. Was recognised that this was a, a fantastic dream, but, but but we have to be realistic about what we can what we can offer. And, and, and I think that that message doesn't always get across. The last year has been an extraordinary year politically in terms of what the NHS means to us. So can I ask you about gaslighting? Because yeah, it's a different spectrum. It's one thing being bullied, then you've got relational emotional abuse, and then gaslighting is this is this insidious thing. That, that makes you think it's your fault or is it, oh, is yes. it your fault? So just mm, remind us what mm, gaslighting mm. is. Well, I think the, the best introduction to this, because I, I, I wanted to go back to basics. I wasn't able to go and see the play Gaslight, the Gaslight but, but it's a wonderful film from 1943, I think, Ingrid Bergman. And uh, so I thought I can watch this film as part of my research for the book. Yes, I'm very dedicated. And so, so anyway, some some chap decides that he wants to get hold of Ingrid's diamonds, and so he marries her. They have a whirlwind romance, and then then he what he wants to do then is to try and undermine her sense that that she understands the world around herself correctly. He begins to undermine her sense that she knows herself, 
and that she is able to make emotional choices and decisions in a way that she can you know, trust. So actually what he does is something you know, which is the anathema of being a psychotherapist, which is undermining a person's capacity to trust in themselves. Because if you stop trusting yourself, then it's as, as a moral agent, as a, as, a, as a thinking person, how do you then make decisions about the world? You've been told by everyone around you actually you're just reading it wrong it's just you you, you got it you got it wrong and 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 the film has got some wonderful quotes or the kind of things that, that can that, that can serve to to that project to undermine someone's capacity so for example suggesting it's well you're like a child i think you like a child you misunderstand the situation i think that's a direct quote from the film or you know things that i've actually heard from practice which is well, actually i think you're you're quite difficult. You're quite a difficult person, aren't you? Or you're quite sensitive. You're, you're, in fact, it's become a thing now. I think on the, in some branches of psychology, which is like uh, sensitivity, which is somebody who just takes the world a bit too seriously, and that's a pathology, which is really worrying. So, so you know, I, I've worked with people in the NHS who have asked me, "Am I too sensitive?" I've been told I'm too sensitive. It's like a pathology. Well, this is just this is just bullshit to to undermine your sense that what's going on around you is so you're sick, you're unwell, yeah. Are you all right? You're having a hard time, you find it difficult right now. You know, there's it's very invidious and it slowly undermines the fact that actually you're a thinking moral agent who knows what's going on and can make decisions for yourself and recognizes when things are wrong. And it and it undermines your confidence in then being able to challenge because you think. Am I right here? And I hear it so, so very many times when I when I'm working with people. Am, am I being? Am I being? Is this bullying? Is what bullying feels like? Is it? Is this? Yes, yes, it is. In my experience, the only way to kind of get around that is to what I call triangulate. So if you're isolated in your experience, as Ingrid Bergman was, then you will start to doubt your capacity to make sense of the world. But for Ingrid Bergman, ironically, it was a Mr. Cameron who came to her rescue. <laughs> there is an irony. <laughs> yes, there is. So Mr. Cameron comes to Ingrid's rescue and says, hey, this guy is, uh, is, uh, is uh, pulling the rope from under you. He's, he's uh, trying to get hold of your diamonds, and I'm going to rescue you. Off we go. And there's an element of that, that, that in the dramatic arc that actually applies also to the workplace which is triangulating your experience by talking to others about your experience and sometimes actually getting the evidence for, for bullying is really difficult and slippery because bullies make sure there's no audience. You know, this is something they learned to do as kids as a way of manipulating and coercing people. Don't do it when there's someone around you can see what you're doing. So it very often happens in one-to-one interactions and, and the person just changes. They become someone else. They become this alter ego, and then and then you have you have no where's your reference point for this? You know, it's very often it's so disorientating and confusing that you can't make sense of it for days afterwards. What's happened? So I think what's really important is to triangulate the experience, and that means getting others involved, people that you trust, getting them involved in checking out your experience. And I think this is where relationships, which I talk about in the book, like mentoring, informal mentoring. Yes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trade union caseworker, so very often my, my role is also about these informal conversations. What would you call this? What do you think this is about? What is this like? And, and so I think it's a triangulation 
don't be isolated in it. And yeah, get help, get help. Because I think that's what the bully relies on, that you're going to be so confused and disorientated, you just become demoralised and leave. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, you know, if you put in a, a, a complaint said, I'm being bullied because they, they said I was really sensitive. Well, it's until you start to, yeah, get some, get some sense checking. Am I sensitive, like you said? And is that what's really happening? And, and can you see it happening? And, and I think part of the problem is, certainly in healthcare, is that, like you said, that sometimes the bullies really know that they're bullies and they're doing it on yeah. purpose, but actually sometimes they, they don't know. And do, do you think it's possible to cast like someone else without knowing that you're doing it? Yes, I've, I've, I've wrestled with this philosophical point many times. Because it's about ethics, isn't it? It's about, you know, if, 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 my, if I know my action is wrong, then I'm wrong. If I don't know my action is wrong, is it, is it right? So, but, but actually, having, having played around with that conundrum for a long time, I think, do you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether somebody has 50 hours of therapy with me to examine their relationship with their absent father or their overbearing mother and their uh, a sibling that was uh, disinterested or bullying themselves. What does it matter if after 50 sessions we get to the bottom of it? Actually, what matters is the experience of the person yeah. of the, uh, as, as, the, as the recipient. So that sounds a bit kind of cold, I think, but actually we need to stop the bullying at the point of contact, you know? Mm-hmm. And whether somebody knows or needs therapy, or needs to work it out. Yeah, and it's really difficult, isn't it? Like you said, it's it's so multifactorial. You know, that person might be bullied themselves. They might be in a really difficult environment where they they are held accountable for things that they have no control over, so they're trying to exert control over you. There's all that stuff. But what I did find interesting was you then talked about if you're being relationally abused or you're being gaslighted at work or working in these difficult cultures, you then have to increase the emotional labour that you're you're doing. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, this is a this is an idea that came out in the seventies. That that you know, as as the type of work we, we we do changes, we've gone from lifting things and pulling things. That the kind of work we do is more relational. If you think about work in a, in a coffee bar, actually, your job isn't just about making coffee. It's about engaging in relationships with people that sometimes can be quite rude or abusive or and not everybody is as polite as grateful as i am when when they buy a coffee particularly these days but i think it's 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 then being able to process that your reaction may well be to say how dare you treat me like that what a you what a terrible way to treat bugger off and do that somewhere else these these minor sort of indignities are actually part of the, the emotional workload of doing that job. Going to work or being ignored, that's not nice, is it? So, and I, and I think in, the, in other professions like the medical profession, this idea of bedside manner, you know, it's an old idea, isn't it? But actually that's the emotional layer of, yes, it may well be the 20th, 30th person you've seen that week with this particular malady, but it's actually presenting yourself as this first time ever met this issue. And having to do that takes a huge amount of emotional labor. So, yes, the, the idea of emotional labor, particularly in your profession, is, is profound. It's profound because people look to you for hope when they're frightened, when they're in despair. And you've got to, you know, there's your technical abilities, but also 
that you've got to offer something else. And surely, you know, doing that all the time, you know, it's got to take a toll. You need nourishment and to be replenished. And I guess, yeah, as, as a healthcare professional, that you do see that's part of your job, being able to deal with angry, distressed, upset, cross patients. And there are a lot of them at the moment. Um, yes. yes. Uh, for reasons that are completely without, outside our control. And then you've got yeah. to then add in the emotional labour of dealing with the relational abuse that's occurring in the culture as well, which is a layer that would be really nice if that wasn't there. I know you talk about this sort of relational approach. I can't recommend this book highly enough to people. If oh, you're interested you. in this, please get the book. There's so much in there. But what, what, what principles would you really like people to take away? Okay, so there's a really interesting piece of research done 20 years ago about what works in psychotherapy. What works? And, you know, I originally trained as an organic chemist. I originally started off in higher education as an organic chemist. So I, I really am interested in what works. You know, and, yeah. so, and so are you, you know, in the, yeah. in the mental depression, what works? And so this piece of research looked at what works, what creates a therapeutic change when someone goes for, for psychotherapy? What helps people flourish? What helps people grow? And the research is really interesting. It was, it was shown that about 15% of, of, of what works is just a placebo effect. Yeah. Okay. I, be- yeah. I believe this will heal me. And 40% is associated with just all the other stuff that was on outside. Because when you come for therapy, it's only one hour of your week. There's a whole bunch of other yes. stuff that can change outside and does change. And, and this term resilience is about our capacity to bounce back from tough times with our family and our friends, dogs, pets, you name it. A vanishingly small factor is associated with actual technique, right? You know, it's quite depressing for people who write books about technique, but that hardly matters. What really matters is what's called the common factors, and that's about 30%. The common factors are what's common to a relationship that, that creates a safe space for somebody to flourish and develop. And this sort of relationship is quite unique because very often we don't get it after our relationship with our mother. <laughs> and even then, it's only, you know, not, not all of us are that fortunate to be able to get from others unconditional positive regard. I should say father yes. as well, father, whoever the carers yeah. are, it doesn't matter. Unconditional positive regard. I, I love you just because you exist. And when I look at my children, I, I love them just because you exist. So, so unconditional positive regard, empathy. What's it really? What's it really like being yes. you? I'm interested in what does, what does the world look like from your perspective and and authenticity, being real. Now, these common factors are what the book is about, and so that's what I'm suggesting in the book as well that we can all try this. We can all simply put ourselves aside for a moment and be interested in what what's going on for you, and I'm not waiting for a gap so I can tell you about my day. It's about responding really, really authentically to what's going on for you. What does that do for me? You have you you feel like you're being bullied. I'm, that really bothers me that you're being bullied. And do you know I feel a bit angry as well. I feel angry that because very often people forget to be angry about the fact that they're being bullied. They just feel scared. So so being authentic is about also really checking in with mm-hmm. what that does for you. And unconditional positive regard. You know, it, it's about, it's not about what you do, because I, I come back to this kind of uh, challenge about thinking about, is a bully a bad person? No. 
No. A bully is someone who's 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 hurting. They're they're in pain. At at some level there's a stone in their shoe and it hurts every time they walk. And and the size of the size of the stone changes, but that's all. We've all got stones in our shoes. And I think it's about having compassion about, you know, working with that. I may, I may have sounded compassionless towards bully earlier on in our conversation, but we behave in ways that we know we want to be treated because we're hurting for some reason. So so that that's effectively, you know, the, the relational approach. Yeah, every behaviour, there's an underlying need, isn't there, that that, that is the un- probably unexpressed. Exactly, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And I guess if you apply that, whether you're the most junior person in the organisation, whether you're middle management, whether you're running the organisation, if you apply those three principles running running through it like it's DNA, then you're probably not going to go far wrong. Well, am I searching for utopia? The thing with searching for utopia is that once you've reached utopia, then you're going to have to put some system legs to keep utopia. So you're going to have to then turn into a totalitarian regime. So, you know, there's, <laughs> it's uh, philosophically difficult, but certainly... I'm not looking for utopia. I'm I'm looking for people to just be a little bit more aware that if someone behaves badly, it could be because they're hurting, to have compassion for that person and to and to just withhold judging what they're up to for a little longer than you would normally do so. And that's a relational approach. It's not really not complicated, I think. <laughs> but to put in practice, it's hard. <laughs> It's, it's really hard and we work in such complex organisations and with such complex motivations and things like that. But I, I mean, that has just been so fascinating. It's really opened my eyes to stuff and I think I'll be approaching things very, very differently, really, and hopefully with a little bit more compassion. If you had three top tips for someone who feels that they are being bullied or gaslighted or uh, have, suffering relational or emotional bu- abuse in, in their workplace, what would you say to them? Okay, well, certainly the first one is to check out with a trusted colleague or friend and triangulate. And triangulate means, you know, three or four, square eight, I'm not sure it's a word, but 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 check out with others who know you and just calibrate what's going on because actually being the target bullying is about your experience. Okay, point one. Point two, you make contact. That person could be HR, so it's a point two, could be point one as well. Make contact either with a trade union representative, a guest worker, somebody who may well understand the context of what's going on and, and talk to them. And also, you know, it's, it could be you need to look after yourself as well. So you may need to look after yourself by talking to somebody who's not connected to your family and so on, because actually... Save family time for, for you know, for, for restoring and recuperating and feeling better. And very often organisations have employee assistant programmes that sometimes are very good. And blow some steam and talk to a professional and spare your family from it. Because actually, when you're being bullied, it can preoccupy yourself, you can feel miserable, and it detracts. You know, don't bring it home. Park it with a therapist and you don't have to be this is the whole thing you don't have to be sick it's not about being sick it's about finding somewhere to blow off steam that's not your family or your friends and that's what we're for because then we blow off steam up to our supervisors and eventually there's some kind of huge cosmic chimney <laughs> through which the world's <laughs> pissed offness gets blown out into another dimension you know? <laughs> I just got 
got this thing in my mind of this. And what if this great cosmic chimney accidentally collapses and falls down and all blasts towards one particular profession, which at the moment I think is general practice, but we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Yes, that is really, really helpful advice, Jim. I think I would add to that. You know, we've kind of done a full circle. Add to that when you say looking after yourself and getting help and and pay attention to your own well-being, because if you're not, uh, you know, looking after yourself, it's, it's just much, much harder to do that emotional yeah. labour and, and to cope with whatever's going on in the workplace. Yeah, which is why, you know, apples and bicycles, they do have their place. But that is not alone the answer. Well, I think I think we solved that one. That's chapter seven done. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed today, Rachel. It's been absolutely tremendous fun. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope if there's people who have done who have done me the great service of actually listening to this, that I hope it's helped a bit. I think it'd be really, really helpful. I think there's many, many people around who just had their eyes open by that. So thank you so much for being on. And Jim, if people wanted to contact you, either put your brains or for consulting or for anything, how can they best get hold of you? I have a homepage on the university website my name's james costello and i've also got an email address james.costello at uwe.ac.uk and also i've started a consultancy with my colleague andy chambers and andy came from a different sector he came from the city where i think ideas of what it is to be a human being didn't really fit and so we became concerned about you know what it's like being a parent and combining it with work. And this is, ties in a lot with what we talked about today. So we're called Born Human and uh, the website. Brilliant. So we'll put all those links in the show notes. So do get in contact with James. And yeah, thank you so much. Will you, will you come back on another time? Oh, well, I think we've only just got started, really. I think, uh, I think the philosophy of death and dread, I think, is going to be a real ringer. Do that one? Yeah, death and dread. Right. Oh, yes. Let's do the whole postmodern. Wow. Right. I'm looking forward to that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's been lovely speaking to you, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.